You're listening to The Pet Factor, news on pet health, wellness, and the latest in veterinary medicine. Hi, welcome to the next episode of The Pet Factor. I'm Dr. Jim Hosek. I'm Brini. And this week we're going to talk about a condition we see a lot in dogs and also in cats, mm-hmm. and that's when they develop ear hematomas. So this is like the cauliflower ear boxers and MMA fighters mm-hmm. get where you get fluid building up between the skin and the cartilage in the ear. Um, so it's typically going to happen in the, the pointy part of the ears. Yep. It's initially soft, so it feels like a pillow, it's squishable. But if you don't do anything about it, it's going to get really hard over time and start to scar up and fibrose. And they pretty much never resolve on their own. They mm-hmm. usually need some help there. So they're oftentimes associated with ear infections, and mm-hmm. what happens is the animal has an ear infection, they start shaking their head side to side, and they're whipping those ears around, yep. and that whipping can cause fractures of the cartilage or damage of the blood vessels, and it just causes that blood to start building up. Mm-hmm. It can also be from trauma, so yeah. dogs that are playing that bite each other in the ears is not unusual. Uh, cats fighting with each other will do that as well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it happens for no reason. I've had dog, dogs come in with the hematomas and their ears look absolutely fine. So they must have been shaking off a flea or something okay. bizarre <laughs> like that. Um, there's been some people been thinking there might be an immune-mediated cause for this, but there's not really been any evidence to show that. Um, we do know patients with Cushing's disease um, are more predisposed to it mm. than problems. And in cats, a, a common cause is ear mite infections. Yeah. They'll be scratching at their ears and they're shaking their ears a lot because those ear mites are very itchy and, and a problem for them. With treatment, we're going to want to get the fluid out as soon as possible. Yep. Uh, there's two ways that we can do that, non-surgical and surgical. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes, I'll try the non-surgical first. Okay. We want to see if we can not avoid having to do anesthesia on these animals and do a major procedure. So the most common technique is to stick a needle right into the ear mm-hmm. hematoma. We're going to sedate the animal and give them some pain medication first okay. and suck that fluid out as, as much as possible, okay. uh, ideally collapsing that thing all the way down so we don't have no fluid left inside there. Sometimes that can be a little bit difficult because if the blood started to clot or we get some fibrin forming, these little clots in there, that can make it hard. So we have to kind of push and suck back and forth a little bit um, to make sure we get that cleared out. After we do that, we're going to put a little bit of a steroid in there called triamcinolone. Mm-hmm. And that's going to help uh, with the scarring down and getting that to and decrease the inflammation so that it'll heal properly. And then we'll put them on some oral steroids for about four weeks. It's going yep. to be a decreasing dose over that time. And we get that to resolve it in about 40 to 50% of the animals. We can get that to take care of it. Um, another way, an alternate version of that is instead of using the triamcinolone, using dexamethasone. Um, that might usually requires repeated drainages of the ear. So the animal will come in every day, usually three to five days. They'd suck the fluid out, put a little bit of this dexamethasone, yeah. and that can sometimes get uh, to clear up permanently as well. One case uh, I was reading about, they've actually tried using platelet-rich plasma inside that pocket to help it huh. heal. And we've been using that a lot with dogs with arthritis and stuff. So that might be something in the future we might have more evidence of that might be a, an effective way of healing that. So I'd be interested to see if they do any longer-term studies on that. If it comes back, or if it's such a huge hematoma, <laughs> we just can't drain it and it yeah. just keeps bleeding, we're going to have to do surgery. So the important thing on surgery is that we evacuate that whole pocket and we get those clots and that fibrin out so we have something to heal. Mm -hmm. Typically, I'll make a vertical incision on the inside of the ear to clean that out. Some veterinarians use a sort of an S-shaped incision. Hmm. allows them to get better cleaning of the thing and better healing. When we do that, we're going to scrape. I usually scrape out the inside with the back handle of the scalpel blade. 
but you can use gauze or cotton swabs or anything to kind of clean it out and pull all that fiber and, and those clots out. And it's pretty gross, all the things that you get <laughs> out of there. But then we're going to suture uh, through the ear yep. with nylon sutures, vertically aligned, to help hold that skin in place while it starts to heal up. Mm-hmm. We're going to actually uh, leave the uh, slit open to provide additional drainage in case more blood does fill up there. It yeah. doesn't fill up in that pocket. It has a, a way to go out. Usually by then, by the time we're doing surgery, most of the bleeding stops, so you're set. The most common thing that happens as you're putting the sutures in, you might nick a blood vessel with a suture needle, and then it starts to bleed a little bit from that spot. Um, But that usually stops pretty quickly. So I'll use a straight needle going through. Um, In the old days, we used to actually put a piece of x-ray film or even buttons on the outside to help uh, hold the uh, sutures in place so they don't get burrowed into the skin. If you have a lot of edema, which can happen when you're interfering with the blood flow to the ear pinna, that can cause swelling, and these sutures can actually get buried. Oh. And it can make, make it very difficult to remove them. When we're when you use a button or a film, you can easily get to the sutures and take them out. Mm. The key is not to tie the sutures too tight in the first place. Yeah. So you just want to have them kind of enough to hold the skin in place, but not so they're cutting into the skin. Um, there's actually a, someone had invented a little machine that was like a, remember the button ear that would put buttons in with little plastic oh, yeah. little things? You could do that and, and go through the ear and just do a bunch of pokes with that, and then you just clip them off at the end. Really? It didn't really take off, but it's, you know, something like that's, uh, they're always coming up with newer ways to try and make surgical uh, procedures easier yeah. for us. One of the other things that sometimes uh, veterinarians will do instead of going in and, and doing all these uh sutures is put a cannula or a, a tube into the pocket yeah. and then continuously drain that until it heals. Mm. And in order for that to work, it has to kind of have some suction on it for that to work um, or uh, just be a place for it to drain uh, so that the f- it doesn't be dripping into the dog's ear and causing right. problems. So the one that we use uh, quite often is this metal cannula that can go inside. Um, it can take days or weeks for that to work. So you have to be careful. And then you'll, we'll put a few sutures in there to hold the, oh, yeah. the ear place, but you have to suture that cannula in place. But that's one way, instead of making a big incision, to get in the fluid to drain out of there. The other way is to put what's called a Penrose drain. It's a little uh, yellow rubber tube. You make an incision at the bottom and an incision at the top, pass that tube all the way through, suture it in place on the ends, and then get mm-hmm. that to heal up that way. Again, that's going to be in there a couple of weeks, nice. and it can get yeah. kind of messy. One of the really cool things that I came across, and I've never tried this, is using what's called a butterfly catheter. And the butterfly catheters have this long tubing on the end of them. And so you cut off the end that connects to the syringe, Hmm. and you cut little holes in the side of the tubing. And you feed that into the the cavity in the ear canal, and then on the other end is a needle. You take that needle and stick it into a vacutainer, which has a vacuum in it, will suck blood out and create a vacuum in that space. Huh. And you just tape that up to the ear or the side of their head, and then you can just replace that every day or two to, as you need more suction to clear that out. Wow. So if you're looking for something that, that needs suction, that's kind of a neat way of doing it. Oh, uh, another alternative cool. they have to making the big incision is uh, punch holes. Okay. You use a, a skin punch biopsy. Typically a four, it makes little four-millimeter holes in the ear, and they'll make them every centimeter or so along the ear. They'll still tack the, the ears together, but that provides multiple places for that fluid to drain. From. Yeah. Um, and you can also make the holes with laser. If you make it with laser, you can make them smaller because they're not going to have the bleeding along the edges. Yeah. But you usually do have a bigger hole at the, the, the pendant end, the bottom of that, to help that through. Um, in some cases, you'll need to bandage the ear, especially if there's continued bleeding. Mm-hmm. 
one of the big uh, complications of this is scarring can cause the ear to be crinkled and thickened and, yeah. and have problems going from there. If they have an underlying ear infection, we need to get that treated. Mm-hmm. If We want to keep them from shaking their head and causing <laughs> more problems. I've had some of the long floppy dogs, I'll put one of these little snoods on them, which is a, a, a bandage that goes over their head that's just a tube. Yeah. And it just keeps the ears tacked down. So even if they do shake their head, the ears aren't going to be flopping around. Mm-hmm. Because certainly it can happen in the other ear if it happened to that ear. Another serious complication is damage to the blood supply in the ear when you're doing the surgery. And it can lead to necrosis or death of part of the ear flap. Oh. So the ear flap can basically fall off. Oh. So you have to be careful when you're doing this. It is not an unusual complication to have because you've already damaged the blood vessels to the ear. So it's just a matter of being careful. Again, not making those sutures too tight is one of the easiest ways to avoid that. Right. So when we see these animals come in, typically, you know, we'll do the non-surgical drainage first and then mm-hmm. tell them. But sometimes if they've had it done before, we're going to go ahead and straight to surgery. surgery. Yeah. We will sometimes do a, a drainage again. If it's if it did really well for a few days, I might try doing a, a non-surgical drainage again just to see if it goes. But most likely it's going to need that. So at least half the time, maybe more, your pet's going to need surgery if they have this condition. Yeah. You might get lucky. You might be able to do it without. But I think it's part of it depends on the size of the hematoma, too. I've seen them further just like, uh, you know, the size of a quarter near the tip of the ear where mm-hmm. the whole ear isn't filled with blood. Yeah. And those are the ones probably going to definitely need surgery. All right. Let's move on to our pet news section. Yep. We were going through stories, and we came across this interesting one. And <laughs> it talks about parrots. And something parrots, some species of parrots have in common with human beings. Yes. They're, they're, some of them are selfless. And, like, they do acts that are, you know, they don't benefit themselves, but they're actually out there helping other species or other parrots. That is so interesting because I know <laughs> they've, they've shown that they're the, some other species do do this. And mm-hmm. they said the wolves. Oh, so yeah, mostly mammals that yeah, they've studied. Bonobos, though. which are, like, those really advanced chimps. Mm-hmm. And humpback whales. Yep. I don't think whales help each other, but... Oh, no, they do it all the time, especially with people. Like, when they know a shark is coming, there have been many studies where a humpback whale will try to push a person out of the water knowing that there's dangers coming. Mm -hmm. Other species. Yeah, so they're very helpful. There are a lot of videos of that. Um, But this in Germany, they did um, a study where they took two different species of parrots. Okay. Um, One was an African gray, and then the blue-headed macaw, the cousin of the African gray. Two very smart birds and um both of them are remarkable thanks to their intelligence and they did very well in the study um but what they they did is they taught all the parrots you know to give the researcher a token if you give the token to the researcher you would get a nut as a reward okay so it's like giving them money exactly and And then you get something something with it it. exactly um next they did was they were trying to see if the bird would be willing to help another bird in a different situation um many of these birds were eager to give the researcher their token knowing that they would get a treat but to see if they would be just as eager to give the researcher a token knowing another bird would get the tweet the treat they get nothing they they set them up in some sort of special situation then huh So. so they put them together as pairs um so they were housed together the same species uh not even some some of them were related um some of them weren't even of the same family just same species and just to see how you know their communication and Uh you know living went the researchers noticed they'd give one parrot the token but with no way of handing the uh, researcher the nut or the token, and right. there was no way of getting the nut in return. Getting the nut. Um, the other parrot, in contrast, would reach to the researcher, uh-huh. 
uh-huh. and give them, they had no tokens, but they would try to offer them something in exchange for the net for the other bird. Right. Um, these were the African greys who did that. So the idea was the bird on one side would give the token to the bird on the other side so he could get a nut. Mm-hmm, so he can get a nut. So he couldn't get the nut. No, the bird on the other side couldn't get anything. Right. But the other bird would give something to the researcher. So that other bird got the nut. Got the nut. So he's giving him his token, saying, "I can't get the nuts, but here you, mm-hmm. you might as well get it." Yep, that's like okay. me saying, "Here's five dollars for you. Get lunch." So the, with the African greys, they found that they would help. They would help. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, what they also noticed with the uh, blue-headed macaws, they weren't as giving. <laughs> um, seven out of eight African greys, you know, involved in that case help their partner by giving them the token so they can claim their nuts. The blue-headed macaws weren't eager. Um, they would not give up the token if they knew they were not getting anything. So they would just say, well, if I can't get it, you Yeah, can't no get one's it. having it. Exactly. Um, they even tried to reverse the roles um, and with the other bird. So they tried to reverse it and see if the other bird would help the other one out. Uh-huh. And they were happy to see that again, with the African greys, that they were happy to share with their partners, especially knowing that they had formally helped them out. Again, with the blue-headed macaws, they they were not sharing very much at all. (laughs) They even went as far as trying to see how they were doing with simple feeding Mm -hmm. um, and seeing if just food motivation would help. The African greys, you know, they were able to eat out of the same bowl and help each other, you know, right. eat equally. The blue-headed macaw demonstrated a lot of selfishness, a lot of selfishness. So they put one bowl out for a bunch of birds. Yes. The African greys would share. They would share. The blue-headed macaw, they noticed that the dominant individual of the group would actually drag the bowl away. And the other birds were not allowed to eat anything because that he would like just take it. sounds like my son away. with his cheez <laughs> Um, so they, you know, they hypothesized that it may just be due to the fact, um, that they organized by social groups in different ways and things like that. Right. But for right now, you know, the African greys are very, you know, selfish and helpful. So they're, so, they're, so it's not all across the Paris, but certain groups, it depends on how they live, mm-hmm. they develop these, these yeah. traits. Um, African greys live in large flocks whose okay. members change continuously, whereas blue-headed macaws like to organize themselves in smaller groups with stricter hierarchies. Right, so they um, have a dominance there. Mm-hmm. So in order for that parrot to maintain his dominance, he can't just be giving everything to everybody mm-hmm. else. Exactly. Whereas the African greys, uh, they fly from flock to flock and say, hey, I'm new <laughs> in the neighborhood, can you help oh, me help out? Me out. Or have yeah. a you know, there you go. Wow. <laughs> I, so, I mean, I learned something new. I didn't know this about parrots. I would never have thought that one parrot would do it and another wouldn't. Yeah, That's I didn't think really parrots were so selfish. Or <laughs> Except for African greys. Except for African greys. And bonobos. Yes. <laughs> and the bonobos. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is a, a study that came out of some human research. Okay. And it um, was looking at the benefits of dog ownership in particular uh, to the people developing mental illness later in life. They've known that since humans have domesticated the dog, they've been faithful, obedient, and protective. Mm-hmm. They provide their owners with companionship and emotional well-being. Mm-hmm. And now there's a study from Johns Hopkins uh, Medicine that's been showing that uh, they can, may also give health benefits as well. And they decrease the chance of developing schizophrenia as an adult. Unfortunately, the jury's still out on cats. They don't know, <laughs> they don't know if cats have any effect. <laughs> 
there was some worry that maybe cats, because they carry toxoplasma, and that's been associated with some things that it might be a problem, but it's been mm-hmm. kind of debunked. But So there's some serious psychiatric disorders, and they noticed that some of these are associated with alterations to the immune system of people. Oh. We know the immune system is early on affected by a lot of factors. One of those is having a pet in the household. Mm-hmm. And so that's usually one of the things that the children will have contact with. So they wanted to explore this connection to see if it was... Uh, and indeed a factor. So Robert Yolkin, uh, one of these um, physicians at John Hopkins, did this study. So they went uh, and looked and surveyed a bunch of people that had mental illnesses and a bunch of people that didn't, and they wanted to see if they had a household pet, cat, or dog during the first 12 years of life. And they broke them up into a bunch of groups. They did um, birth to four, four to five years old, six to eight years old, and nine to 12. Okay. And they wanted to see if there was any significant things. And they definitely saw a, a statistically significant decrease in the risk when you were exposed to a dog in early life. Okay. No link in bipolar disease, which is one of the other diseases they were showing. So maybe not as much of a connection for that. Um, they, they did emphasize they need more studies to confirm this, but it's pretty kind of neat that they're showing that. Yeah. And the earlier the exposure seems to be, the better. Um, and they knew that uh, this exposure can alter the immune system in several different ways. So uh, by modifying your allergic responses, yeah. contact with zoonotic diseases, certain viruses and bacteria that the animals carry, um, changes in the microbiome of the home because of the animals there. So the bacteria and yeast that are normally in the environment can be changed when you have pets there. Mm-hmm. Um, pet induced stress reduction, uh, well, pets can reduce stress in pet people and that can affect it. Yeah. And it can actually change people's brain chemistry. All right. So they suspect that this immune modulation may alter the risk of developing these psychiatric disorders, which in, in people are genetically predisposed to, or other factors can predispose them to. So it can actually be, be um, a decrease the effects of some of these other things that can increase the incidences of these medical, uh, these mental diseases. Um, So when they did the study, they asked them when they had it, and they broke it up, and they suggested exposure to the pet before their 13th birthday are significantly less likely, as much as 24% to be diagnosed later with schizophrenia. All right. One of the suspected pet-borne triggers for schizophrenia was a disease called toxoplasmosis, which is talking about with the cats. So they wanted to see uh, cats are the primary host for this, but a lot of different animals are the secondary host um, for it. So they can uh, carry the infection, uh, and then cats eat that animal, and then it finishes Mm -hmm. its life cycle in them. Mm -hmm. Uh, They did this review paper, which they looked at a large number of people. And what they found was that the people who were diagnosed with serious psychiatric disorders oftentimes had high levels of the antibodies of toxoplasma. Mm-hmm. Again, they didn't see any increase or decrease when people were exposed to cats. So there's lots of ways people can get toxoplasma other than cats. Right. Cats, you're going to get it primarily through the feces. Mm-hmm. But you can get it from eating undercooked meats, yeah. uh, poultry. You can get it from contaminated soil where the cats have been. Mm-hmm. So those are things to look at. So it's kind of neat how um, pets not only benefit us in, in a lot of social ways, but yeah. mental ways and physical ways. And this research is really very interesting. And certainly they do know that the toxoplasma is something that affects behavior in people. And it, it works by affecting behavior in animals. Um, one of the things that I read is that rats that are infected with toxoplasmosis, when they're put in a maze where they have the scent of cat urine at one end and not at the other, mm. the non-infected cats will go away from the cat urine. Right. The ones that are infected go towards the cat urine smell. Whoa. So it makes it easier for the parasite to complete its life cycle. Wow. This is a single-celled organism. To come up with these things is just amazing. Huh. 
just a really interesting story. And again, we we see a lot of these come across yeah. in our, our pet health segment. And when it, we find things that affect our health, I think it's really very interesting. Yeah. So everyone should go get a puppy or a kitten as a baby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Expose your kids to pets, the, the dogs. The young when age. Young. Yes. And so another one. We have millennial owners often put pet health before their own. Millennials, they, they do a lot of weird things. We, I, I'm not, I am I'm one, we it's... do. Yes, we do. <laughs> and I will say, I will, and it could just be because I work here, but I will bring my pet to a clinic before I take myself well, to this one. Is, this is one thing I like about millennials. <laughs> Um, so if pressed for, if pressed for cash, 62% would bring their pet to the veterinarian rather than going to the doctor themselves, a new survey says. 62%. That mm-hmm. means 38% wouldn't. Yes. <laughs> so that's a lot. That is a lot. That is more than half. So it's saying that millennials certainly care about their pets, some perhaps even a bit more than they care about themselves. Right. This is according to a recent survey conducted by the Health Packet, an online research that connects uh, customers consumers and medical coverage with pooled 1,000 people between the ages of 20 and 35 to find out more about how they appro- uh, approach and prioritize health care. That's, that's got to get a lot of hospitals upset. <laughs> they want yep. They don't want to get their uh, their colonoscopy. Well, no. Nope. Because they would need colonoscopy if you're a millennial. Yeah, but you know, you don't want to get your blood work done. <laughs> right. But I'd, I'd save my blood work money for my pet. <laughs> well, then this thing here about the health insurance is really interesting, too. Um, for pet health insurance. So uh, most, uh, uh, 25% of millennials have pet health insurance Ooh. for their pets. Yeah. Where the national average is like 5%. Yeah. So again, hey, millennials, come on down. <laughs> We'd love to see you with your pets. And yeah. I wish that number would be higher for the general population. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got pet health insurance for our employees here. Yeah. And it's certainly something we like we like to recommend. But we'll probably have another podcast based on that. Yeah, we could do that. All right, let's move on to our case of the week. This week, um, we're going to talk about a dog I saw in the clinic uh, named Willow. And Willow had, um, about a month previously, injured her knee. Okay. And so she, her owner actually uh, works for another veterinary hospital. And she took it in and they diagnosed Willow with a torn cruciate ligament, which is the ACL in people and dogs, we call it the CCL or cranial cruciate ligament. Mm -hmm. And they had told her this dog needs to have surgery. She's a college student. She works part-time. She didn't have the money. She did a little research, found out that I did the surgery here. It's a lot less expensive than the clinic that they yeah. wanted to refer to, the surgeon. So she came in for a consultation for me to examine. And the first thing I noticed when Willow came in is Willow's just bouncing around the room, walking <laughs> on the leg, jumping up, using the leg pretty well. And when I'm going to do a surgery on an animal, I want to make sure we're taking an animal that's not using leg and starts using it. So mm-hmm. if they're already using it, I don't know if my surgery is really going to be much help for yeah. that animal. So when I examined Willow, I did feel some looseness in the knee, but diagnosed with a partial tear. Okay. So in a partial tear, the knee has more movement when it's either extended or flexed. Mm-hmm. So bent all the way up or straightened all the way out. In her case, when I bent the leg, that's when I got more motion. So okay. when the leg was straight, there wasn't that much motion, and it didn't bother Willow, so she could walk around just fine. Okay. She didn't have a lot of swelling uh, on the inside of the leg, which is the medial collateral ligament gets swollen. And another thing that the pet owner had asked me about was stem cell treatments for knees. And it's not typically something that's going to cure the knee, but in Willow's case, where we just need some really good anti-inflammatory pain management, uh, we said that's good, but that's a very expensive procedure. Mm-hmm. Turns out the clinic where she's working, they're looking for some test cases, and they were going to do it for free. Nice. So I said, get that done before you do <laughs> surgery. We'll reevaluate her and see if she needs surgery after that, but yeah. it's not an emergency procedure. 
So the key thing here is don't be afraid to get a second opinion if there's something, especially if it's not mm-hmm. life-threatening like a, a cruciate injury. Yeah. Uh, if your veterinarian is going to refer you someplace, find out. We actually had a, another dog come in, and they thought it had a cruciate injury. It wasn't a cruciate injury at all. Oh. So it's happened a couple times. So you, before you send your dog for a really expensive surgery, make sure you get that checked out. Mm-hmm. And any condition, if you've got uh, cancer, if you've got skin issues, if you've got uh, eye problems, mm-hmm. breathing problems, your vet oftentimes will recommend referral to a specialist. Yeah. But don't be afraid to say, you know what, I, I want to get a second opinion. We're not yeah. going to be offended. No, We're absolutely fine with that. If you can find someone else who can treat the condition mm-hmm. that's more in your price range or, or a different technique or something that you don't have available, yeah. please go for it. All right. Tech tips. This is really kind of something that I've been uh, interested in because I have a lot of people that go to these dog parks. But I've had other people that have tried to take their dogs to dog parks and they just find that it's miserable for them. <laughs> uh, the dogs don't have a great time mm-hmm. or they come back with fleas or yeah. coughs and things like that. I have some friends that have a Doberman. He loves the dog park. Mm-hmm. As soon as they get inside the fence, they take the thing off and he's off running off. looking for squirrels. Yep. So that's their face thing. But I wonder if you had any tips on people in terms of choosing a dog park that might be right for their dog or even if dog parks are right for their dog. Mm-hmm. And what sort of things should they be doing if they're going to be taking their dog to the dog park? Well, dog parks people have to think about are the playground for dogs. So you have a lot of other people's animals who are out there. So one thing is, is your dog pet friendly or not? Um, If you know your dog gets anxious around other you know, male dogs, female dogs, or just any dog in general, you'd want to look at you want to go to that park first and see who's there before you take your dog there. Is your dog more, you know, shy or aggressive around small dogs, little dogs, or bigger dogs? See who's coming and going from these places before you just throw your dog in there. We do see a lot of cases where we have dog fights yeah. um, that happen in dog parks. And that's because you have to think if your dog is off leash and running around with 50 other dogs, if something happens and they're about 80 feet away from you, Who's going to get there first? How much damage is going to happen? And, you know, who's going to be able to pull these animals apart? So you do just want to make sure that, A, your pet is the one that's going to be comfortable going to these places. Um, So trying to desensitize your pet before maybe going there. We do have a lot of high-anxiety dogs that do seem to do better after having gone to a pet do a dog park. Oh, okay. um, and a lot of it is socialization. Right. Um, you know, a lot of people who live in apartments or, you know, who are gone a lot of time throughout the day and they have a single pet home. If your pet is left home, you know, alone a lot of time, they don't have that socialization that they need. And then especially if they're just kind of sitting at home with just you, you know, you become their home world. So taking them out, getting them seeing other people because there are going to be other pet owners in the park, other dogs that do help them, you know, again, put them in their place. Sometimes Mm -hmm. if you have a high anxiety puppy or hyperactive one who likes to jump or initiate things or like get in other dogs faces, there are going right. to be some dogs there who will take that leader position and will just put your puppy in the place. And we do have some owners here who are saying, my dog does great now after coming from the dog park. That's because a more mature dog just took your puppy and said, yeah. this is how you act now. This is my house. You're not going to do that here. And it does help them a lot. Again, animals are just, they're kind of like people. They need to get out in the world. They right. need to socialize. They need to learn, they you know. Role models. Exactly. They need role models. It's like taking your child to preschool. 
you know, they need to see how other children are acting, other behaviors and things like that. If you have a child and you leave them locked in a house for 25 years and then just say, go out into the world and see how it works. It's not going to end well at all. Kind of the same thing with your dogs and dog parks are you know, a great place to do that for right. them. Um, you do want to make sure that your pet is completely vaccinated and yeah. up to date on their pre- prevention because you don't want to take the chance that you have somebody who just brought their dog in from a shelter or a pet store and just put them mm-hmm. out there without having any vaccines. You don't want to check, take the chance of somebody doing what they're supposed to do right. and them not doing it. And, and some dog parks have specific rec- requirements mm-hmm. that you have to take care of. And they may want to do vaccines more often or stool sample testing more often mm-hmm. than your vet usually does. Yep. We get um, dog, fo- dog park forms every day, at least 10 of them a day. And I do love it because for how much fun a dog is going to have, there's a lot of work that has to be uh-huh. put into it. Yeah. They need their rabies, their distemper, their lepto, their kennel parvo, cough. their kennel cough. Yeah. A lot of these parks are requiring the flu vaccine now. I, I would definitely recommend the flu mm-hmm. vaccine if you're going to be taking your dog. Yeah, we have parks. some owners that ask, you know, certain places like, oh, is it okay? We'll look at what they require. And I'll say, sure, if you want to take the chance. But I'd recommend this dog park here. Like, yeah, they're requiring you to do a lot more work for it. But that's good. If yeah. they're making you work for it, that just shows that how good they are at maintaining a certain standard. And if you want to take your pet out, you want to help maintain that standard with them. Um, and then you want to make sure that they're on flea and tick prevention right. um, because it is a big park. And who knows what's in that area? You can get, especially at night once all the dogs are gone, you can get squirrels, you can get raccoons, you can get rabbits, coyotes, coyotes boxes, yeah. Anything that could be carrying fleas or ticks or, you know, even, you know, those little rabbits that can leave their little surprises in the ground that dogs think are the best little milk treats. That's how you can get some coccidia or just any type of intestinal parasite. The intestinal parasite is important, too. So Mm -hmm. um, we like to pro-hard because it's continuous. So anytime they're exposed to it, it kills it right away. But Mm -hmm. anytime you're using the monthly preventives, that's going to kill anything they picked up the previous month. So you really have to be aggressive with that. On top of it, yeah. Yeah, and those are things that you want to make sure about because while you again, while your dog is out there sniffing and having a good time, your eyes are not going to be on your dog 100% of the time. Yeah. You can be watching as much as you want, but there's going to be that time you look down at your phone. You're going to be talking to a neighbor or you know your dog is just going to run and you're going to see another cute dog that is going to catch your attention. So unless your dog your eye is on your dog 24/7 in that park, there's always a chance that he can pick up something. There is a chance that he can instigate something with another dog. It's the cases of make sure your pet is covered. Make sure they are vaccinated. Make sure your prevention and everything is up to date. And then just making sure that your pet is ready for something like this. Mm -hmm. Never take a fearful pet and just throw them into this situation because that's how you're going to start a dog fight. Um, If they're too nervous and you're in a park with 50 other hyperactive dogs and you're just shoving your dog in there, your dog, it can be a fearful bite and Mm -hmm. it's nothing to blame the dog about on. That's how they protect themselves. But you want to make sure you get them used to it. You know, maybe drive up to the park and walk your dog along the fence so they can see how the other dogs are doing. That makes sense. Or even just drive in the area and see how your dog reacts to the smell. Just roll down the window a little bit. How do they react to the smell? Are they getting excited or are they getting anxious? Is this something where you really want to put your dog you know, in contact with. Um, and then again, just see how the other dogs behave in that park. 
if you pull up and you just wait for maybe 10, 15 minutes and you see that there's one rambunctious dog that keeps tackling the other dogs or the owner's not paying attention to them, you know, you can always say, you know what, let's wait and come back another day right. when that dog, particular dog, is not there. You know, you want to think for your pet's safety. You don't want just want to throw her out there. Mm-hmm. If there's someone there who's going to tackle her and potentially hurt her. And then you do want to watch dogs when they're running around because a lot of times we see torn cruciates after dog parks (laughs) because you have dogs just running around at top speed because they're getting their zoomies out. And then next thing you know, collision, they get T-boned by another dog who had the zoomies and that odd tweak in that motion that is enough to tear a cruciate so those are something too that you have to be careful for so you know dog parts again they're great i'm not saying anything against it but i'm saying if you're going to do it just be prepared for the consequences that could come from there we had one dog came in cracked a canine because it was a head-on collision Oh. Yeah. And, you know, luckily the the other owner was completely understanding because they had seen it happen. The two dogs were just running high speed and, you know, two (laughs) big old, luckily again, two big old blockhead pitties, but one had cracked a canine and the canine is a huge tooth. Yeah. So you have that cracked and then they had to go under dental. I mean, go under for a dental and we had to go and extract that canine. Those are never fun. Those are never fun. But luckily, the dog is doing great. He's got three canines. He still can go to the park. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's just those things that you have to be aware of and Mm -hmm. prepare for. For for most dogs, the benefits are probably going to outweigh those risks. Oh, yeah, definitely. With the socialization and the behavior Mm -hmm. and getting that exposure to the other dogs and how to behave properly. Um, So those are some really great tips. And if you are thinking of taking your dog to a dog park, talk to your veterinarian first, Mm -hmm. find out what the requirements are, and do some of these things to check it out and see if your dog's going to be a good fit for us. Great. Next week, we got a little bit different thing going on with the podcast. We're going to have an interview with Dr. Megan Souders. Okay. She's an oncologist who works with VCA clinics, Mm -hmm. and uh, they're going to talk about their uh, Pet Cancer Care Alliance. And their new linear accelerator that can help uh, treat certain types of cancers that previously were difficult to treat. So we're going to have an interview with her next time. And as always, we'll see you uh, at then. I'm Dr. Jim Hosek. And I'm Brittany. Bye. You've been listening to The Pet Factor with Dr. Jim Hosek and Brittany Reeves.